You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today I'm discussing the case of April Beth Pitzer. In 2004, April Pitzer was in a terrifying situation. Nearly a decade after working as an undercover informant for the police, her past is catching up with her. She's just met a woman whose husband is in prison due to April's testimony against him. She knows she needs to get out of California fast and makes plans to move in with her mom across the country in Arkansas. In a few days, April's bags are packed and she says her goodbyes. But April never makes it home. This is the case of April Beth Pitzer. It's 1996, and 22-year-old April Pitzer is in a very bad situation in her home state of Arkansas. She's just been pulled over for driving under the influence. Earlier that night, she was having some drinks at a bar when she began talking with two women. In their conversation, April learns that the women were basically stranded without a way home. So, unfortunately, April makes the choice to drive them and herself home. She fails the sobriety test, and police found methamphetamine on the two women. At this point, April's given a choice, face the charges or become an undercover informant. April chooses the latter, having no idea that this one choice would change the rest of her life. As an informant, April gathers information about a drug enterprise specializing in methamphetamine. 
She visits clubs and bars and records herself making drug deals. And ultimately, because of her work as an undercover informant, many arrests are made. April's mom, Gloria Denton, says that April's life was never the same after this. She just got really scared and paranoid and basically never stopped looking over her shoulder. She's so nervous that she ends up leaving Arkansas altogether to go stay with her father's family in Texas. And leaving seems to work, at least for a little while. By the year 1998, April has a brand new life in Fort Worth, Texas. She's gotten married to a man named Chase Pitzer. His family helped them get a gorgeous new house, and they're expecting their first daughter in just a few weeks. But then, April's past comes back to haunt them. One day, out of the blue, she gets a knock at the door. It's the DEA. And they've come to tell April that she's being called to testify as a witness in the case she acted as an informant on. They go to court, and many people are convicted based on her testimony. Now, while they tried to hide April's identity as the informant, she was still scared. And probably with good reason. April's one of those women that's just magnetic. She was a mom. She modeled. She had a good heart. People were drawn to April. While authorities did hide her identity, she was kind of hard to forget. And it's not like this was just some kind of, like, small backyard drug dealer. The drug ring she helped break up spanned all the way from Arkansas to California. It was a huge national operation. But April tries to go on with her life. She's in this beautiful home, she has her husband, and eventually their two daughters. From statements I found from April's loved ones, it seems like she really does love being a mom, but it also makes her paranoid, which I think is pretty understandable given the circumstances. According to Gloria, April was afraid to let the babies sleep in their own rooms alone, terrified that someone would come through the window and kill them as payback for her testimony. And all of this really sends April into a downward spiral. She begins having intense outbursts and drinking and using drugs to cope. But she recognizes that she needs help and she seeks it. She goes and sees a doctor, she gets diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and begins trying to find the right medication for her. But in the end, April and Chase's relationship just dissolves. They eventually divorce, and April moves out of the family home into an apartment and begins working at a gas station. Then one day, April goes back to the home she shared with Chase and the girls to pick up some clothing, but she finds Chase, his mother, and Child Protective Services discussing their two girls. April's basically told that her apartment isn't a suitable home for the children. They don't think that she's taking her medication and she's losing custody of her kids. Now, of course, as these things go, it seems that April was given a plan to follow to regain partial custody, but this just devastated her, and it really only makes April spiral more. In reporting by Tammy Min for Inland Empire magazine, Gloria describes this time in April's life. It seems like everything really just happened so fast for her. She's called in to testify as an informant when she's pregnant, and while she's adapting to be a new mom while living in this fear, she has a second baby almost right away. Then, while she has two kids under three, she separates from her husband. Gloria says she believes April was incorrectly diagnosed, and that she really needed care for stress and postpartum depression. Quote, She was just zombified. She felt like she'd gone crazy. It just wasn't April. End quote. At this point, it seems like April feels like there's really nothing left to lose, and as if history might be repeating itself. 
See, Gloria had April when she was very young, and ended up losing custody of her. They always kept in touch, but it wouldn't be until April was 17 that she was able to move back in with her mom. In an interview with the Unfound podcast, Gloria says that when they were reunited, April told her mom, quote, Mama, now we have forever. No one can keep us apart again. End quote. So now April's about 30. Her marriage has failed, and she's lost custody of her girls. Her whole life has completely derailed. Now, after moving out of her family home with Chase and the girls, April met a new friend named John Lopez, a trucker out of California, and she starts hanging out with him and his crowd. Eventually, John makes plans to move back to California and asks April to come with. She agrees, thinking absence makes the heart grow fonder. Maybe if she just ups and leaves the state, Chase and her in-laws might realize how much they need and love April. By the end of 2003, April is in California. While I think many of us immediately conjure images of palm trees, beaches, and great weather when thinking of California, that was not April's experience at all. She's basically in the desert in Southern California near Barstow. It's filled with a lot of dirt and a lot of heat. Not only that, it's just not the safest area. There are a lot of drugs and a lot of criminal activity. In his interview with the show Disappeared, John says that he warns April about this, that this area is known as the meth capital of the world, and she needs to be very careful about where she goes and who she hangs out with. But he says that she didn't listen, and soon she and John would part ways, leaving April completely alone with strangers in this brand new landscape. It seems that what happened was one night John takes April to a party in the desert near Barstow. Here, he introduces her to his friend group, and April takes a liking to a man named Mike Brunel. April ends up asking Mike to take her out on his dirt bike for a ride through the desert during this party. And when John Lopez realized what happened, he storms off, basically dumping April here with all these new people she'd just met, and nowhere to sleep for the night. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Like I said earlier, April is beautiful and magnetic. People are drawn to her, and Mike Brunel was no exception. After knowing April for just a few hours, Mike says that she can come live with him on his property at the outskirts of Newberry Springs. This is about 20 miles east of Barstow. Now, again, this isn't a large, beautiful home on acreage across the rolling green hills of California. Basically, Mike has a bunch of trailers and buildings on a large piece of desert that 
kind of becomes this outlaw town of sorts. There's no electricity, and they're so far from civilization that work is really hard to come by. But it's a place for April to lay her head, and she says yes. After all, this was all meant to just be temporary anyway. But as April's saying yes to Mike and making this move to Newberry Springs, she knows she's putting herself in more danger. We don't know if she did this out of desperation for a place to go or if she was just kind of ready to lose it all because of what happened with Chase and her daughters. But in running from her past as an informant, she runs right back into the exact crowd she helped basically send to prison. As I said earlier in this episode, the drug ring April helped dissolve stretched from Arkansas to California, and specifically to Newberry Springs, California, the town she was now living on the outskirts of. Soon, she became entangled in the exact same crowd she testified against. In the episode of Disappeared featuring April's story, a man named Steve Wilkinson is interviewed. Not only was Steve a part of the drug operation April helped dissolve, but now he was basically her neighbor. But of course, Steve isn't the only person in this community. There's a larger network of people committing crimes, selling drugs, and just partying. Like I said, it's kind of like this outlaw town in the desert. While there are many players in this story, a few are highlighted in relation to April's case, including a man named Chuck Hollister, or Uncle Chuck, and a man named Dan Dan. One night, April, Mike, Dan Dan, and Chuck are all drinking at Chuck's house, and according to some sources, using drugs. Throughout the course of the night, things turn sour, and April and Mike are accused of stealing car parts. It's said that from here, Mike is tied up, and April is shot in the leg. Mike apparently escapes and calls the police in fear for April, but when officers show up to speak with Chuck, Dan Dan, and April, they all say that Mike is basically just paranoid and high on drugs. How they explain or hide April being shot in the leg, I don't know. Maybe she wasn't shot at all. See, what's hard about telling any of these stories about April in this community is it all comes in bits and pieces from a lot of different people, mainly being told to her mom, Gloria, after the fact. No one other than maybe Steve Wilkinson is really going to the police or mainstream media with this information. So I just want to preface that a lot of this information comes from interviews with Gloria and posts she's made on social media based on conversations she's had with those in this community. Sometimes this is just how things go. I mean, April was recruited to be an informant by police for a reason. There's a reason informants exist altogether. Sometimes all we have are stories from untrusted sources, regular people like April, or people in this community who felt bad for her, or wanted her to pay for what she did. All of that to say, we don't really know what happened to April while she was living here. We just have what those around her have told others. But according to those around April, after she basically didn't defend Mike's story when the cops showed up, Mike kicked her out, and April was once again left with nowhere to go. And the thing is, another reason we only have third-party information to go on here is because April was deeply ashamed of what was happening and was lying to her mom about it. While all of this was happening, April was telling Gloria that life in California was great. She was working and thriving, when really April was without a home and scavenging for her next meal. One day, April is walking really aimlessly along the highway when a man pulls over and asks if she needs help, and April just begins sobbing and telling this man everything that's happened to her, 
getting divorced, losing her kids, the trials and tribulations of living in California, he decides that he can't just leave April out there with nowhere to go. And he takes her to his mother, Barbara Killebrew's home. Barbara is older and sick and could genuinely use some help. And she and April become fast friends. This is really the first semblance of a family environment that April has seen for a long time. Now, unfortunately, Barbara just didn't have the extra room to allow April to live with her, so she was still moving from place to place, basically crashing wherever she could. But Barbara really seems to care for April, and after hearing her story, she tells her that she needs to call her mom and tell her the truth. She needs to tell her what's really been happening out here. And April agrees. Gloria Denton says that this is the hardest phone call she's ever taken. She was shocked by the conditions April was living in and what she'd gone through. April explains that she was just deeply ashamed to tell her that things didn't go according to plan. And she tells her mom that she wants to come home. She wants to go live with her in Clarksville, Arkansas. But at this point, the plan for April to come home wasn't really solidified logistically. It was just an idea. And it seems like April really is still on the fence. What she was facing in California was hard but going home and starting over was going to be hard too. Now, like I said, April didn't have her own home and relied on others for basically all of her needs. According to interviews with Disappeared, April began staying at Steve Wilkinson's house, the man who was involved in the drug ring that April testified against. Now, Steve says that April left his home because she was preparing to go back home to Arkansas, but Gloria says the real reason April leaves is because she's scared. See, in early June 2004, April met a woman who knew who April was. Not only that, her husband went to prison based on April's testimony. When April meets this woman who has been affected by her testimony as a police informant, she tries to apologize, and she begins going into detail about her experience. But according to Steve Wilkinson, this woman wants nothing to do with April. She basically just wants her to go away. But this whole interaction stirs up a lot of attention on April as word about her work with police continues to spread through the community. Everything April was running from after leaving Arkansas, after leaving Texas, has finally caught up with her. And April knows that she's now in even more danger. On June 22nd, she calls her mom and tells her what happened. And Gloria implores April to please just come home. She tells April that she's going to die if she stays. She even offers to buy her a bus ticket. Now, April was on board. She wanted to move back home with Gloria, but Gloria wasn't actually there just yet. At this time, Gloria was still in the process of moving from Texas to Arkansas. So April says, listen, once you get back to Arkansas in a few days, I'll take you up on that offer for a bus ticket. I'll come home and help you get settled after the move. Gloria agrees, but implores April to go somewhere safe in the meantime. She asks her, where can you go? And April says that the best place for her to go is Uncle Chuck's house, aka Chuck Hollister. He was known for taking in people down on their luck and helping them. And April had stayed with him before. It was someplace familiar that she felt was safe. April gives her mom Chuck's number and tells her to call her when she gets to Arkansas so they can arrange for that bus ticket home. Gloria makes the move from Texas to Arkansas, and a few days later calls up April to get her back home. But no one answers. She calls and calls and calls for days. But every single time, it just rings. 
Then, on July 4th, Gloria gets a call from Barbara Killebrew. She'd been in the hospital, and now that she was out, she wanted to call and see how April was adjusting to life in Arkansas. But Gloria tells her that April never made it home, and she can't get a hold of Chuck Hollister. Barbara is shocked. Chuck brought April to her home to gather some belongings she'd left there, and to say goodbye. In fact, Chuck apparently brought April to many places to say goodbye to the people she met in California. So Barbara assumed that April was long gone by now. Obviously, Gloria is terrified. At this point, it's been over a week since anyone has seen April, so she calls the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department to report her missing. But they do not take the report. They say April is an adult, and due to the trouble in her life, it seems like she probably just doesn't want to be found. But Gloria is not giving up. She knows her daughter. She knows something is wrong. On July 16th, she calls up Barbara and asks her to report April missing to the police. And they finally take the report. Then, a few days later, Chuck Hollister finally calls Gloria. He apologizes for the delay and explains that he had been up in Oregon helping a friend move. But he says he doesn't know where April is. When he last saw her, she was going through pictures of her girls crying, saying that she was going home. And when he got back from Oregon, April was gone. So he assumes someone took her to the bus stop to go back home. But he says that there was one thing. All of April's belongings, all the items she went and got from the friend she stayed with in California, were still there. Her backpack and her white suitcase were still on Chuck's property. Now, obviously, alarm bells are just ringing in Gloria's head. Nothing about this seems right. It's not like April had a truckload of items to bring home. It wasn't a big move. It was just a few bags that she planned to take with her. Wherever April is, it isn't good. And luckily at this point, it seems that the sheriff's department begins to take April's disappearance more seriously. Flyers are put up, interviews are conducted, the investigation is finally starting to begin. On September 9th, they get a call from a transportation employee in Barstow. This employee apparently heard a passenger on their bus discussing how they knew April, and how they knew where she was, dead in a hole. When police follow up, they deny ever saying this, and instead tell officers that this is just something they heard at a party that April is dead and was placed in a mine shaft in the desert. But not long after, there's another lead in the case that connects to the same theory. In the stall of a men's restroom at a truck stop in Oregon, a note was written on the wall that reads, quote, Want to find the girl from Arkansas? Three miles south of Barstow. I-15. End quote. And to their credit, investigators jump on this. They search from Barstow to the Calico exit on the I-15. Well, as much as they could. Because according to Steve Pennington of the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department, there are hundreds of mine shafts in this area. Some they can't safely explore. But they come up with nothing. Not a shoe, not a bag, or hair of April's is found anywhere. Now, while one team searches the desert for April, another team is working on figuring out who may have written that note on the bathroom wall in Oregon. Luckily, this truck stop had cameras, and they were working. In fact, they were on 24-7, and the footage went back for months. So investigators are able to review it all. 
They look back at each and every person who uses the men's restroom at this truck stop for weeks. But despite best-case scenario for the surveillance, they were never able to connect whoever wrote that note to those seen in the surveillance. While police are working their leads, Gloria Denton is still hard at work trying to find any trace of April. Now, we know April didn't have a phone, but this meant that along the way, she shared many different phone numbers with Gloria, basically whoever April was staying with at the time. So Gloria starts calling all these numbers, asking for any information people may have. And slowly but surely, Gloria begins hearing the rumors going around April's friend group. And most of them revolve around April being killed and buried in the desert, specifically mine shafts in Ludlow, California, about 30 miles east of Barstow. And it just so happens that someone April knew owns a mine shaft in Ludlow. Chuck Hollister's friend, Dan Dan. He apparently owned what's called the Red Dog Mine. Chuck and Dan Dan actually spent quite a bit of time out in the Red Dog Mine and other mines in the area collecting materials to make and sell jewelry. Now, just for some context, this whole area was a part of the California Gold Rush in the late 1800s, and it seems like Chuck and Dan Dan were still chasing this dream of striking it rich by finding gold. Now, I will say that it's pretty unclear exactly what Dandan legally owns, but this is an area he seems to have claimed for himself dating back as far as 1979. He writes his name and messages on abandoned trailers and random shacks in the area, including warnings that outsiders should not be there. Investigators attempt to speak with Dandan, and he spends months avoiding them, but they do eventually track him down and he basically says he has no idea where April is. But of course, investigators are not ready to drop this lead. They continue to search the area, which is basically a bunch of abandoned shacks and mines. In these buildings, they do find some disturbing messages allegedly written by Dan Dan, including, quote, three people can keep a secret if two are dead, end quote. And, quote, you can leave or you can disappear. I can help you disappear, no problem. End quote. In December 2004, officers and cadaver dogs searched the Red Dog Mine, and April wasn't in it. And there wasn't any evidence gathered to conclude that April spent any time there either. But April made an impression on this community, and the leads just keep coming in. In January 2005, a woman named Andrea Pruitt sees one of April's missing person posters and immediately calls the police. She owns the Baghdad Cafe in Newberry Springs and gave April a job in April 2004. She says April just walked into the cafe, said that she lived on a dirt road a few blocks over and was looking for something to fill her time. So Andrea took a chance on her and gave her a few shifts starting the next day. On April's first day at the cafe, she comes in dressed well and does a great job. She was nice to customers, and it seemed like things were going to work out. But on April's second day, she came in with a black eye. When Andrea asked what happened, April wouldn't say, and after that shift, she never came back. While investigators believe that April was most likely living with Chuck Hollister at this time, there's really nothing definitive to link him to April's black eye. So again, this lead really just sits with all the others. But like I said, this is a case with no shortage of leads, and this next one is probably the most concrete yet. Through researching this case, I learned that there are such things as desert lore historians, 
Basically, these are exactly what you'd expect, people who have studied the desert and its history extensively. And part of their work sometimes is giving tours. In this area, specifically what sounds like kind of a gold rush tour. They take people through the mines and the history of this very crazy time in California. During one of these tours in December 2005, a historian enters an abandoned shack and finds women's clothing. Now, for safety reasons, I don't want to say their name, but this particular historian was actually already alerted by police about April's case and asked to just kind of be on the lookout. So when they see this clothing, they immediately call the police. And when Gloria hears about it, she flies out to see these items for herself. Now, this is the first time Gloria has ever gone out to where April went missing from. And she's stunned to see how desolate and really kind of scary everything looks. It's just rocks, sand, and abandoned buildings covered in graffiti. It's a stark and terrifying difference from April's life in Texas. And when she sees the clothing, her heart just drops. She sees a red and black flannel shirt that she knows is April's because Gloria sent it to her herself. Apparently, during her time in California, April calls Gloria and says that she's cold. She needs cold weather clothing. And Gloria remembers when she sent it. April called her to thank her, and she ended up sobbing because the shirt smelled like home. This prompts a search of nearby Indian Queen Mine but nothing related to April is found. At this point, Gloria is at her wit's end. And even though it was already searched, she wants to see Red Dog Mine for herself. She just can't get over the possible connection to Chuck Hollister and Dan Dan. When she gets to the mine, Gloria immediately sees the white suitcase Barbara gave April. The same suitcase Chuck Hollister told her April left behind at his house. Now, I don't know why the suitcase was not immediately taken from Chuck's home by the police, but it wasn't. And during the first search of Red Dog Mine, it was not there. But now the suitcase is here, and April's clothing had blown all over the area. So they take it for testing. But in what seems to be the unfortunate theme in this case, nothing comes of it. From here, investigators go back to Chuck Hollister, who is now dying of cancer and they just flat out ask him if he wants to clear his conscience and tell them what happened to April. But he dies denying any involvement in her disappearance. Now, for the first time, the case really just sits. In May 2006, Steve Pennington took over April's case, with a warning from his sergeant. Quote, This is April Pitzer, and her mom will call you every day. End quote and Gloria laughs at this and admits that she was a pain in their butts, but all in an effort to find April. And Gloria really does work for April. She begins holding searches twice a year, once in the spring and once in the fall, basically whenever the weather is temperate enough to hold a search. She works with countless organizations to raise funds for a $50,000 reward, billboards, memorials, and more searches, but they all come up empty. In 2009, Gloria is out in California again for another search, and she hears that Dan Dan is sick and in the ICU. So she goes to him, wearing a shirt with April's missing person poster printed on it. They talk for over an hour, and by the end, Gloria feels Dan Dan was kind and not involved. He tells Gloria that April was a sweetheart, and he hopes she gets justice. Gloria believes him, but then 
A few days later, right before Dan Dan dies, he confesses to friends that he knows what happened to April, and he says that Gloria is in the right place. She just hasn't searched far enough. Now, Gloria and investigators don't really know what Dan Dan meant by saying that she was in the right place but didn't search far enough, but they can only assume that it means the Red Dog Mine. So, in November 2009, cadaver dogs are lowered into the mine. But again, there are no hits. There's another search of the mine in March 2010. But again, nothing related to April is found. In August 2012, April is legally declared dead. And Gloria turns to a private investigator to help sort rumor from fact in her search for April. And they find something. After following all the tips Gloria received over the years, it led them to a key person of interest who was willing to speak with her P.I., but then, the P.I. suddenly passes away. In early 2013, Gloria discussed the lead they planned to follow up on with Desert Dispatch News. They were told that on the day April went missing, she attended a party in Newberry Springs. Gloria says she believes that there were seven to nine people at this party, and there is some type of video of April. But it seems like the trail with this lead stops at just rumors. By July, Steve Pennington is promoted and taken off April's case, much to Gloria's dismay. But she doesn't stop. She's back in California by September to follow up on a tip she'd gotten that April's body was dumped in a well off Dixie Road in Hinkley. And this time, they find something. Or at least what they think is something. It appears to be a piece of a skull with brown hair still attached. So again, Gloria sits and waits for testing to be done. And in the end, it was never linked to April. At this point, your heart just hurts for Gloria Denton as she takes another devastating blow. But she's relentless and continues to hold searches and raise awareness for April. And it's not just Gloria. The sheriff's department seems to really want to find April, too. In 2016, they appealed to the public for help in finding April's remains. They also say that they want to re-interview everyone involved in the case. But again, nothing comes of it. And slowly, Gloria begins to fade from the public eye. In 2017, she did post another theory about April's case. She'd heard a few years prior that April was lured to a party, presumably that same party she thinks there's video footage of. Apparently, according to this rumor, April was duct-taped to a chair, mutilated and decapitated. But now, this woman who told her that is saying that April was beat in the head with a baseball bat until her eyes popped out. Gloria adds that law enforcement has heard this story and they don't seem to care. In her post, she writes that she really doesn't know where to go from here, but she's hoping to follow up on this lead. And I'm sure it's no surprise that I'm going to tell you that as far as I could find, nothing came of this. Now, I do want to add some personal opinion here. I think it's worth noting that the timing of this revelation came soon after the infamous season 6 finale of The Walking Dead, where something nearly identical happens to a beloved main character. So, personally, in my opinion, just speculation, I think it's really possible that this person and possibly multiple people in the area were just being cruel to Gloria at this point. I could be wrong, and I hope that I am. 
I just have to imagine that her presence in this community multiple times a year probably wasn't exactly welcomed by those who were suspected to be involved in April's disappearance. Gloria Denton made her final post to the missing April Beth Pitzer Facebook page on April's 45th birthday, February 19, 2019. It reads, quote, Heavenly happy birthday to my baby girl April Beth. Not a day goes by that I don't think of you. I love and miss you so much. End quote. Truth be told, I've been looking into April's case for months. And I tried to find Gloria so I could speak with her for this episode. But I couldn't. She was the heart behind this investigation. And honestly, I wasn't sure I could make this episode without speaking to her. Like we see happen all the time in true crime, April's story and disappearance has largely become Gloria's story too by default. When you live these cases for years, and then decades... They have a way of changing you and your life forever. That's just what happens. It becomes a part of your story, too. While I was trying to connect with Gloria, though, I found a quote. A rare quote from one of April's daughters, Kennedy Pitzer. By the 10-year anniversary of her mom going missing, Kennedy was 13 years old and very much feeling the impact of growing up without her mom. For an article about April, she told Macy Jenkins with KTHV, quote, I wonder what it would be like to have a mom to go to for problems. And just knowing that she's not going to be there when I get married or help me pick out my dress is just hard. End quote. This quote was it for me. It's why I knew I had to cover April's case. April would be a grandma now. And just like how these cases become a part of your life story when you live within them, they also tend to get passed down to younger generations, like April's daughters, who would now be in their 20s, around the same age April was when she had them. This is a burden no one should have to bear alone. According to some of Gloria's last statements, no one is seeking justice for April, they just want answers, and her daughters want their mother's remains so they can say goodbye. Which brings me right to our call to action. This case is really different than a lot of the ones I cover. We don't have a lot of hard facts, just a lot of rumor and speculation about what may have happened to April. But sometimes we just have to work with what we know. And what we know is that at 22 years old, April made a stupid decision to drive after drinking. And she more than paid her debt to society by putting herself in danger for the rest of her life. Danger that may have cost her her life. Cost Gloria her daughter. And her children their mother. Someone knows what happened to April. And her family deserves answers. Please share. There is always hope. As a reminder, April Beth Pitzer was 30 years old when she went missing near Newberry Springs, California. She is white, 5 feet, 9 inches tall, with brown hair and hazel eyes. At the time of her disappearance, she weighed approximately 130 pounds. She has a scar on her elbow, lip, left side of her stomach, and left side of her chest. She may have been wearing gold hoop earrings when she went missing. 
anyone with information is asked to call the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department at 909-387-3690. But as always, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney, and is a Voices for Justice media original. If you love what we do here, please don't forget to follow, rate, and review the show in your podcast player. It's an easy and free way to help us and help more people find these cases in need of justice. Welcome to The Secret After Show. Back by popular demand, uh, the door is open and the dogs are in. They are floating around here somewhere. I'm sure that you will hear them in this audio. Um, I brought them back because somebody told me that they missed it and it only takes one of you uh, to, to make me want to bring back something that brings you joy in some way. Um, so, Let's get into April's case. Um, I guess, you know, you know how this goes. Afterthoughts and all that. <sighs> this was a hard one. <laughs> Again, I know I say that like every week or whatever because they're all hard um, in their own unique ways. And, you know, of course I felt for April, right? Let's start with that. It, it's all about April. Um, like, man, she never asked for this. You know what I mean? I mean, yes, she did agree to be an informant instead of getting the DUI charge. Um, but I have to believe that a 22-year-old, you know, wasn't expecting that this would be the outcome. That she would, you know, become an informant and be so important in this case that, um, she would convict, you know, I think it was 32 people was the exact number that went to prison because of April, you know. I'm sure in her mind that night after she's had a few drinks and she's talking with police and she's probably terrified, you know, she wasn't thinking that uh, this is what would happen, that she would spend the rest of her life being paranoid, that she would then have two children that she was terrified for. Um, so I I don't know. I it This episode hurt me. Um, and I don't know exactly what the perfect solution would be, but... I kept asking myself, um, why didn't the police do more to help April? What was there more that they could do? You know, some type of, I don't know, witness protection program or something. She was so scared and I just wish somebody could have helped her. And that's not to place blame on those around her. It does seem like she was loved, you know what I mean? And when it comes to those interpersonal relationships with child custody and care, we don't know what happened. Um, I just wish that there was some program, some type of intervention from police that they could have followed up with her to make sure that she was okay because she clearly was not.
And then Gloria Denton, you guys. Oh my gosh. I cover, obviously, a, a lot of cases here, and I, I research about a lot of parents, and I will just say that April is incredibly lucky to have Gloria and to see her so passionate doing all these interviews. She's going out and doing searches twice a year, and then for her to just kind of slowly fade away. Like, I get it. You know, I get it. That type of pace is not sustainable. And at every turn, like I kept saying in the episode, these leads, these rumors, the concrete evidence didn't go anywhere. And there are only so many times you can get knocked down before you decide that maybe this time it's better if you don't get back up. And I'm not saying that's what happened with Gloria because I truly don't know. And I don't want you to take my speculation as fact. Um, but Gloria, if you're out there listening somewhere, I hope that you're doing okay. And of course, um, like I said in the episode, you know, when I couldn't reach Gloria, I had a choice to make. You know, do I do the show? Um, I knew that Gloria hadn't really had a social media presence for a few years. I didn't really know what the situation is. I, I still don't know what the situation is. Um, and then I found that quote from April's daughter. And I knew. I knew that... Even though I doubt Gloria would ever put that type of burden on her grandkids. These are things that siblings, parents, children, whatever, they pick up. They tend to pick up this baton that has, you know, kind of just fallen to the ground or whatever. Um, and they run with it because depending on the person, right, you feel like you have to. And you almost feel this guilt. I mean, I know for me, <laughs> I felt guilt when I didn't do anything for Alyssa. I felt guilt when I was laying on my couch watching Netflix. Um, I decided to do the episode, and I really hope that it helps. Now, before I move on, um, I do just want to kind of give some shout-outs. When I was researching this case, I was stunned by the amount of people that Gloria was able to get to help April's case. I mean, more than I can probably remember here. I have a, I do have a little list. I have a little cheat sheet. Um, let me grab it, please. Patience, patience. And the reason I didn't have it in front of me is because I found more people and I had a longer list. So the Kristen Foundation, Home Depot, Best Western, Sparklets, Lamar Advertising, General Outdoor Advertising. And I'm sure that there's more I didn't even find. Um, but I just want to give them a shout out when I see companies donating in true crime. Um, I just like to make that known um, in case you are someone who cares about supporting businesses that seem to care about the community. And I know Home Depot has some troubling history behind it, so don't come for me. I'm just saying they helped in this case. If you want to see uh, me, it feels so cheesy whenever I do this. If you want to see an episode of Dark Truth on my Patreon about Home Depot, let me know. Um, 
I love that kind of stuff, to be honest. I love digging into like corporate history and seeing what's shady because there's usually something shady. Um, whenever there's a huge corporation, just like billionaires, you guys, right? There's usually something shady. Um, but this was a nice thing that Home Depot did, and we will leave it at that. Moving on to what is happening with me, what I am watching and what I am reading. Be excited. I have watched something true crime related and I loved it. That was, oh my gosh, what was it called? Um, American Nightmare. Oh my gosh. I'm sure that like so many of you are watching that. Um, it's huge right now on Netflix. But if you don't know, it's a three-part series that goes over um, one of my favorite, one of my favorite subjects in true crime, right? And that is the dangers of speculation and true crime, um, irresponsible true crime journalism, I should say. I don't want to give it all away. Um, maybe I just should. I don't know. I feel like everybody knows about this case and I'm like just finding out about it um, because it it all happened when I didn't consume true crime for work or whatever. Um, but essentially, this couple, I'm going to give it away. So this is a spoiler. If you don't want to know about this case, fast forward and the episode, whatever you got to do, I'll see you next week. Um, essentially, what happens is this couple gets kidnapped. This uh, married, I'm sorry, they're not married, you guys. I am the worst. You'd think I'd be a great storyteller. No, I need to write it down. But what happens in this show is essentially this uh, man and woman are dating and um, kidnappers come into their house and they take the woman. Um, and oh my, I won't ruin it all for you. I'll just say that. But essentially, um, the guy goes to the police and he's like, oh my gosh, you know, we just got tied up. They took my girlfriend. Like, please help. And they're like, mm-hmm, buddy. Yeah, uh-huh. These people came in in wetsuits, huh? They came in and put goggles over your face. Is that what happened? You know, they interrogate this guy for hours and hours and hours. And essentially, they're like, we don't believe you. Um, you killed your girlfriend. Where is she? It, you know, the whole thing. We see we, we see it in true crime all the time. Um, and then the, the woman is let go by the kidnappers. But this doesn't make the police change their mind. It doesn't make the media change their mind either, right? The, all the media is like, this guy's a killer. He killed his girlfriend, you know, in like the most PC journalism way possible. Allegedly, police believe that this story is a hoax, whatever. Um, so this woman gets released and it only fuels the fire more because this case happened right after the movie Gone Girl came out. Of course, infamous Gone Girl, great movie if you have not seen it. Fantastic book if you have not read it. Um, I'm like gasping for air over here trying to tell you this story. But essentially, um, because of Gone Girl and because she like returned, um, they were like, no, you're just like recreating the plot of Gone Girl. And um, they end up just like kind of destroying these people's lives for a while until the kidnappers are kind of like sick of it. And eventually um, a guy comes forward and is like, no. They really were kidnapped. He starts, like, sending all these weird things to this journalist to prove that their story is real. And then, thanks to the work of a single wonderful officer, they are out there. There are so many out there. Props to her. I cannot remember her name. But she ends up putting it all together. And she goes back to this police department and she's like, hey you guys got this wrong. Like, they really were kidnapped. Um, it's a great story. Um, 
you know, obviously horrible for them. They did get a settlement of, I think it was $2.5 million, which does not feel like enough money. But in the end, it did work out, and they finally got to tell their story on Netflix. And what I think is really cool, it's done by the production company Raw, who is one, fantastic, but two, um, really... The people at the center of the center of the story take the lead in telling this case, which you guys know is my favorite way of consuming true crime. So again, if you are looking for a really twisty, turny, crazy true crime story um, that had heavy involvement by the people involved, check out American Nightmare on Netflix. It is three hours. I consumed it all in one sitting, um, and it was fantastic. So that is what I've been watching. Now on to our segment of hope. And this one is different. Um, I feel like I've just, you know, there are so many stories out there of cases being solved, and that's fantastic. But I I think that hope comes in different forms. And I just wanted to, I don't know, I, I got this email, and I thought that this would make a great feature for the segment of hope. And um, in a way that you might not think about. Um, For me, the hope, I mean, it kind of ties back to Gloria Denton, right? The hope here is never giving up. So you guys might remember I covered the story of Jacob Londine, who was just a small baby who unfortunately lost his life. Um, You know, there's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of questions into Jacob's mom's boyfriend. The timing was very suspicious. Um, Go back and listen to that episode if you have not yet. Um, Better yet, go over to the True True Consequences podcast and listen to Jacob's brother Eric tell this story. He has a few parts over there and he tells it in a really fantastic way. Um, But I covered this case. I've known Eric forever um, and he sent me an update and I want to share that here with you. Basically, in his email, he says, "Um, I wanted to share this with you in case you wanted to share it with listeners. And he says, quote, Hi. First and foremost, I want to thank you for caring about justice for Jacob. I want to thank all the creators who covered Jacob's case. I also want to thank all the listeners for your engagement in the Justice for Jacob movement. Your efforts helped us get the case to the point where it currently is. I have not been able to provide updates for a long time. But I want to back up a bit and bring you up to speed on what's been happening. Three years ago, I asked for help in calling and emailing the district attorney in Socorro County, New Mexico. And you all showed up. Calls, emails, and letters poured in from around the world. We initially planned to do this for 10 days, and the DA responded two days later. He asked that the AG take the case, because he did not have the resources or time to deal with the calls and emails. So thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you for showing up for us. The AG took the file and started an investigation. Unfortunately, there was an election halfway through the last three years which stalled the case. In December, the AG's office reached out to my mom and I and asked for a meeting. We were excited because we believed that the AG would not bring us in if it was bad news. I wish that happened. Unfortunately, we did not receive the news we were hoping for. We were told by the prosecutors that through their investigation, they were not able to find sufficient evidence to prosecute. This is not the end of Justice for Jacob. We are going to continue pushing for change in New Mexico, even if that means a change in the attorney general or laws. 
we will continue to do everything in our power to make sure that no New Mexican family has to go through what we have gone through. Once again, thank you for your support and love. It has carried us through these last few years. We may be reaching out again to ask for help from you. So stay tuned as we take a step back and start planning our next steps. Thank you again for amplifying Jacob's voice. We cannot thank you enough. Love, Eric. End quote. So the reason it makes the segment of hope, right, is because Eric hasn't given up hope, and I don't think we should either. Also, I think it's clear from that email, that update, um, we have been a part of sparking hope for Eric and for his mom, Brenda. So, while it's not the most satisfying resolution, I mean, it's not satisfying and it's not a resolution at all, um, I hope that all of, I hope, 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 my favorite word, um, I really hope that this just shows you the effect that people like you, you right now, I am in your headphones talking to you, you can help people like Eric, just like you helped people like me. Or just me. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time.